Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, our century, looking back, thinking forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupminorityhistory.com. I'm Jan Rieberg, Early Career Fellow at the Birkbeck Institute for the Study of Antisemitism in London. And today I will be talking to Peter Judson, Professor of 19th and 20th century history at the European University Institute in Florence. We will be talking about nation, empire, and minorities in Central and Eastern Europe. Peter is the author of, among other works, The Habsburg Empire, A New History, which first came out with Harvard University Press in 2016 and has since been translated into several European languages. Full disclosure, I had the enormous privilege to have Peter as my PhD supervisor. Today, I'm delighted to have the chance to continue our conversation. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular aspect of history? Thank you very much, Jan. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Uh, and I would say that like many people, I came to this kind of history in a not a very direct route. Uh, at the beginning of my career, I studied history, but really the history of Germany. And I had planned to become a German historian uh, when I was at university. This was the field that, uh, this was the big field. It was the popular field. It was the where all the cutting edge work was being done. This would be the 1980s. Uh, and my supervisor at Columbia University was uh, Istvan Deak, a really wonderful scholar and a very uh, great man himself, uh, who had a very strange career too, uh, where he started as a journalist and ended up as a historian almost by accident. In any case, he said to me, everyone is studying Germany why don't you study the Habsburg Empire? Because if you do that, you can do really big topics. And if you study Germany, you will have to take a very small topic because everyone else is studying it. So uh, I did that and I was happy to do it because uh, the Habsburg Empire, but also East Central Europe, what we used to call Eastern Europe, uh, was a great interest to me anyway. But I would say not from the perspective of nationalism and national minorities, because in the 70s and 80s, uh, what we were interested in then was economic history, social history. And in fact, I remember saying to someone, well, I'm never going to say anything about nationalism because that's just not interesting. Nationalism seemed to be something minorities that was already written about. It was already solved. Uh, it was a problem. But um, so that's uh, how I came to the field. I studied, uh, I already had German, of course, I studied the Czech language, much to the dismay of my supervisor who wished that I could have studied Hungarian. And nowadays I often wish the same myself. But again, uh, if you were going to study economic and social history, Bohemia, the Czech uh, and German regions there, that was the place to study. That was where the interesting things were being done. So I learned Czech. 
I then chose, if you want me to continue, I'll just say, uh, I've always been a bit provocative in the sense that I don't believe necessarily everything that's been written and handed to me. And back then, there was not much writing about the Habsburg Empire. Uh, and some of what was written uh, made the region seem quite backward. That was a word we used to use uh, by the standards of the rest of Europe. And then, of course, this backwardness continued, supposedly, uh, during the Cold War. Uh, and I was interested in politics and political culture. A very famous book came out by Karl Shorsky in 1980 about politics and culture in Vienna, 1900. And the argument of that book was that because Austria, the Habsburg Empire, never had the experience of liberalism, Western liberalism, that a kind of illiberal pol political culture developed. And I, my first thought when I read that was, I don't believe this and I'm going to disprove it. So my entry into the field was really that way. And what brought you then to minorities and nationalism and the national conflicts and why they, and where they matter, where they don't matter? What was the transition then? Yeah. Well, I learned very quickly that you can't be in the history of the Habsburg Empire and not have an opinion, at least, about nationalism and minorities and national conflict. Nas I should say nationalist conflict, uh, because in the second book I wrote, I was very curious. It was during the fall of Yugoslavia and especially uh, the violence in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, in the 90s. And I was very dissatisfied with the way in which these events were being reported in the press uh, as being typical of the region, as if it were something that wouldn't happen in Western Europe, but only Eastern Europe, forgetting, of course, places like Ireland or Spain. Uh, but I wanted to investigate what is the history of violence in nationalist conflicts and not at the level of high politics, which would be easy, but rather at the level of the village. And this meant I had to look a bit to anthropology, but the study I eventually developed was a look at certain language border, what was called language frontier regions. So places where people who spoke uh, one or two different, two different languages where these regions met essentially. And I looked at two or three of them to investigate how nationalist violence and why it happened. And I chose, I mean, we can go on, but I, I chose a single year in which several interesting incidents had occurred and looked at this year all over the region. And then I enlarged the study. And what I learned was that there was a big uh, gap between what was reported in the newspapers, the nationalist newspapers about violence and what was reported by the police or the courts. Uh, what I also learned was that many incidents of violence, which were typical of Europe around 1900, uh, had more to do with, say, drunkenness or social conflict, local social conflict, rather than with na nationhood. And that very often local social conflicts were reinterpreted by the press and immediately expressed as nationalist conflict. And this led me to wonder 
were really were there were the feelings among local people and I even the I, the category local is a strange category but this is how I asked the question uh, were those were did they really feel nationalist did they really want to uh, battle against their neighbors and what produced all of this uh, and this led me to another discovery which was that if you read the reports and accounts written by the nationalists, and I was mostly looking at German and Czech nationalists, but also uh, German and Slovene, German and Italian, uh, what I learned looking at their writings carefully was that they actually were quite frustrated and they believed also that local people were not terribly nationalist and this was a problem and they needed to teach them to be nationalist. So the book I eventually produced was one that argued that most people actually weren't nationalists. Nationalist conflict was something that politicians talked about and newspapers talked about, but that when you actually got down to the local level, you found different phenomena, that people understood their world in, in different terms. Uh, so this brought me to the idea of uh, national indifference that, and I should say, I think it was a historical moment that there were several of us who were working in the similar directions and we happened to develop this term national indifference around the same time. Uh, and that eventually I think became very productive for thinking about the significance or meaning of nationalism in daily life in East Central Europe. Thank you so much for that. This is, um brings me already to, to another question, which would be um, in the context of minority history, if we look at the Austrian half of the Habsburg Empire, I mean, there was no clear national ethnic or linguistic majority in that sense. Yeah. So hence by definition, in some way, everyone was in a minority, at least on the state level, if not, of course, not on the local level, but on the state level, which in, in a way brings this concept of majority minority out of Sodom. But um, can we speak of the creation or even invention of minorities with the downfall of the Habsburg Empire? What happens when this state collapses? What does that mean for nationalities? What does it mean um, for minorities? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think we can speak about the creation of minorities in the years uh, before the collapse of the Habsburg monarchy, uh, simply because we, we should always remember that it's not simply the state alone, it's the state engaged with initiatives from below, let's say, that creates these categories. Uh, and you're absolutely right, there are, I would say, I mean, legally and officially up until 1900, there aren't minorities and majorities in the state in Habsburg, Austria. There are majorities and minorities in different regions. But the only reason there are is that uh, language use became in the 19th century a more and more important category for the state to worry about. Why? Because the state had to carry out uh, policy of universal childhood education for boys and girls. I mean, that's one reason. So that then you have to ask, well, which language is the local school going to be in if there's no national language? And then you have to say, okay, if there are people who speak a different language, how many should there be 
to allow them legally to ask for schools. So these kinds of administrative questions are what created, in a way, the idea of the minority. Uh, and then nationalist activists take the state uh, concerns and make them their own by arguing, we are a minority, we have certain rights, and these rights should be extended in all areas. So for example, it's not simply schools, but if you go to court, what language will you make your complaint in? Or what language is it okay for you to do that? Uh, so all of these questions create at least the idea of a minority. And then, sorry to go on about this, it becomes rather complicated, but then in the early 1900s, there's the idea that perhaps uh, politics and the administration of the state could be reorganized around language. So in two or three of the imperial provinces, there's an attempt at what's called compromises, which would legally, for the first time, legally recognize, uh, let's say we have two nations and we will separate them in terms of uh, voting, in voting for the local magistrates or voting for the diet or for the parliament. Uh, so in Moravia in 1905, for example, there's a compromise between the German nationalists and the Czech nationalists that say, okay, from now on, all Germans who live in Moravia will vote for their own representatives and the Czech speaking ones will vote for theirs. And uh, things like the school system will be divided up according to nation. The only problem with that was, well, there are many problems, but the big problem was that most people, many people in Moravia didn't feel that they belonged to one or the other nation. So when they were told they had to sign up for one or the other, there was quite a bit of confusion. Many people who agreed they were part of the Czech nation or the German nation later wanted to change their minds. And they didn't realize that they couldn't change their minds. In any case, I'm just giving this as a background to show that the idea of nationhood was beginning to become anchored in law. And that's where after the fall of the empire, uh, the real, I would say problem uh, develops. Because uh, as you asked in your question, the states that replaced the Habsburg monarchy were organized self-consciously according to what they called national identity. So there's Poland, which is supposed to be Polish, Romania is Romanian, uh, Yugoslavia is the South Slavs, um, Czechoslovakia is the Czechs and the Slovaks, which many people argue are one nation. Uh, if you organize a state according to that principle, then what are you going to do with the people in your society who speak a different language or don't identify with the nation. Uh, and of course, each of these states, in fact, was composed of many people who didn't see themselves as part of the majority nation. Uh, if you look at Poland and Romania, you know, uh, the majority nation is perhaps about 65% of the population. And that leaves a lot of people who have to be dealt with. Uh, I don't know how far you want me to go here, but um, what it meant was that almost immediately these new states had to figure out how to deal with the people who weren't part of the nation. One strategy was to 
uh, nationalize those people and to force them to become part of the nation. Uh, that didn't work too well. Uh, another strategy is to encourage those people to leave. And further on in the 1930s, and of course, during the Second World, World War, another strategy becomes uh, ethnic cleansing through destruction of people, uh, genocide. Uh, and in my view, by anchoring nations in law the way these states did after 1918, they almost guaranteed that there was going to be a violent outcome at some point, because their legitimacy lay in the fact that they were nation states. And if they had large numbers of minorities, then that questioned their legitimacy. At some point in the future, those minorities could make trouble. The great powers might come in and redraw the boundaries as they did in fact uh, in the late, at the end of the thirties and early forties. So that meant nationalists had to solve the problem, the problem, that is minorities were a problem. And I wanna add one more point, which is it's not simply state governments. The state governments uh, make a lot of talk and propaganda about how nationalist they are, but in the end, they, they are relatively moderate in terms of how they wanna treat, deal with minorities. But there are many nationalist groups in society that take the initiative and want to force the state to be more radical in its treatment of uh, national minorities. And if you look at, uh, I mean, you can see this really strongly in Romania, for example, but you can also see it in every, in Czechoslovakia, for example, there are radical Czech nationalist groups that um, continue the kind of activism they had engaged in in the Habsburg empire against Germans in the border regions. So, and of course, German nationalist groups too. So, uh, the problem isn't simply invented by the state, uh, it's actively engaged in. There are now new opportunities from below to nationalize that a lot of people get involved in. So that's sort of how I see the uh, institutionalization of the idea of the minority, which as you say, and I think it's true, before 1918, it really meant something different. Thank you very much. I will, I will stay on, on this topic a bit and um, see how it um, goes further through the 20th century. In the epilogue of your book, you make a point about uh, this tension between state and nation that you refer to right now as well. It came to the fore during and in the aftermath of the First World War. You write, um, quote, the critical importance of the contradiction between nationhood and statehood that dominated the interwar years in ways that could not be imagined before 1914 also helps to explain the generally horrific treatment of ethnic minorities during the Second World War, as well as the post-war expulsions of imagined undesirable uh, populations, end quote. So could you tell us a little bit more about this trajectory? So this is, there've been a number of recent works um, um, that are looking at practices of exclusion and practices of, of violence against minorities. I'm thinking of Jeffrey Weidlinger's new book about um, the pogroms in Ukraine and how they connect to um, the Holocaust. But I was wondering in this context, do you think that the, this logic of nationalism, the politics of the autumn of 1918 and subsequent years and the treatment of minorities, are, are they already pointing towards the Holocaust and the horrors of the Second World War? In my opinion, they are pointing there. And I want to make this argument very strongly because I, 
I want people to understand that if you are going to found a state on the idea of nationhood and particularly nationhood, the way it was defined in 1918, then this is a possible and probable outcome. And let me explain something a little further. I think uh, there's been some discussion more recently about race uh, and nationhood in this context. And I would argue myself that the nationalists, especially the more extreme nationalists around 1900, even before 1918, uh, found themselves almost forced to make arguments that their nation was so radically different from the neighboring nations that this difference constituted an argument for receiving uh, rights as a nation within the Habsburg Empire. So in a way, the, the only way you can argue persuasively that you are due, say, a form of political autonomy uh, within an empire, let's say, uh, like the kinds of things Boris Kuzmany was is talking about in his uh, ERC project, the only way you can really make that argument persuasively is by convincing the state that your group really is a group in the first place. And secondly, that your group is somehow distinct, separate, unique, in fact, radically separate from the people who live next door. This is, I mean, I go back to the work I did on the language frontier where what really interested me was, I, I saw it as a narcissism of small differences, in fact, that um, people who lived in these regions actually shared common cultures but that viewed in a nationalist sense, they couldn't be seen as sharing anything because if they shared things, then you couldn't make the argument that they were different and that they should have autonomy or more political power based on their difference. So for me, these arguments about difference come to an almost extreme, well, yes, an extreme point uh, that to us today, to me equals a, a racialist argument. And once you have that, you can't go back and, and try to organize the society uh, on other common bases. I, find, I think that's very difficult. If you spent 20, 30, 40 years trying to convince people that your group is substantially different from the other group, uh, then something has to be done about the other group. So for this reason alone, I see violence as a possible outcome. Now, I also want to say that what you were talking about a moment ago, uh, especially with regard to pogroms, uh, which you know better than most people because you've written about this, um, these, these outbreaks often have very different kinds of origins. And we can't simply make a category that says that um, there's a local minority and there's going to be violence against them. I mean, that would make no sense. What we have to understand is the situation that produces this kind of violence or where people will see themselves as belonging to um, irreconcilable groups. So, okay, I mean, as historians, we have to analyze it that way. But it seems to me that the nation states after 1918 almost have no choice but to implicitly and sometimes explicitly encourage that way of thinking, that we should see 
social problems, economic problems, always in terms of nationhood. And I, I find it quite ironic that I, the person who said I never wanted to think or talk or study about nationalism should be making this point uh, because there are other ways of explaining this too. But I think it's important for us today when there's recurring waves of nationalism and state governments that are using those to their political advantage, that we understand where this can end. And that it's, I mean, I think we've had plenty of examples, you know, I mean, for my generation, uh, I was born basically 10 years after the fall of Nazi Germany. So for me, the Holocaust and never again, you know, was always the slogan. And then we had the 90, I mean, we had plenty of things, but I think for a lot of people to see the kind of violence that uh, took place in the former Yugoslavia within Europe was a shock and maybe a realization that never again was not a particularly effective slogan. Um, but I think, I do think we have to take violence and even genocide pogroms, we have to take this very seriously as possible outcomes when we practice this kind of politics. Could you um, exp explain a bit on the attempts at the time um, to mitigate these threats and alternative proposals, very often coming um, being made by minorities or minority activists themselves of um, a form of state that Poland or Czechoslovakia, that in itself is not being questioned, but alternative proposals of um, that being a state of many nations, a multinational state where um, this would, there wouldn't be this form of violent <clears throat> conflict or violent oppression. And on the one side and on the other side, um, the uh, minority treaties uh, as that were imposed arguably, or actors at the time argued as a, as a means to prevent the, or to 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 square the circle of a yeah. of a nation state or state based on nation and the existence of uh, large minorities in those states and why did these concepts and why these instruments did not uh, not work or what is your take on that? Uh, you've got a couple of questions here, so please remind me if I don't answer part of them, especially the first part, because I'm going to start with the minority treaties. Uh, and I am not so much an expert on uh, the 20s uh, as, the, as I am on the empire, but uh, I will say there's a lot of really interesting historical work being done right now precisely on this question. Uh, and some people have argued, Natasha Wheatley, for example, that the minority treaties essentially are an attempt to continue what some, some of what the Habsburg state tried to accomplish in terms of managing issues in Habsburg Central Europe. One problem with the, well, there's so many problems with the minority treaties. One problem was they, there was no enforcement mechanism. Uh, uh, groups could bring complaints to the League of Nations, but they had to bring them, there had to be a, another state that would bring the complaint, for example, and that's only one small thing. There was no guarantee that these states would actually carry them out. And what's interesting is, there was so much local opposition, for example, in Romania, uh, to signing the Minority Rights Treaty. But I don't think people should have worried because once they were signed, it 
it had no effect. But a bigger problem is, and this I've struggled with for all of my career, that it was imagined, I mean, if you think of the logic underlying the minority rights treaties, who actually had to sign them and who didn't? They were imposed. They were imposed by some countries on other countries. The countries that imposed them implied, and in one case explicitly said, that they didn't have a minority problem. And so it was a problem of Eastern Europe, it was not a problem of Western Europe. This, I mean, if you think about the extraordinary, I mean, I want to say chutzpah, really, I was going to say irony, but I mean, of Britain, for example, not having a minority problem in 1919, 1920. I mean, it's just stunning. And there is a great example. Um, Tara Zara wrote a wonderful article precisely on this question, comparing the French treatment of uh, German speakers in Alsace after the First World War to the Czechoslovak treatment of German speakers in Czechoslovakia. And what she points out is that Czechoslovakia, in fact, followed a more Western model of understanding of treatment of minorities, and the French followed a very, what we would have called Eastern ethnic model. Uh, so to confuse the issue, the French delegate in this article, she's, she has a great example where I think it's a Lithuanian delegate to the League of Nations asks why every country doesn't have to sign a minority rights treaty. And the French delegate says something like, well, how is, would that be possible? France has no minorities. And this is a presumption that completely undermined the effectiveness of the whole regime just to start with. I mean, you can't, uh, and, and, and what drives me crazy about this is that today we still see questions of minorities, of ethnic minorities as being a particularly Eastern problem. Now, that is to say, when we look at Spain, for example, or uh, Italy or Britain, yes, we can say, aha, yes, there are these movements, there are these autonomous demands for autonomy, linguistic equality, but somehow we never see that in the larger context of Europe. Uh, if we say, where's the problem of ethnicity? It's always the East. So. That's a huge problem uh, with the minority rights treaties because it's not, it, it, and I mean, don't, we don't even have to start thinking about the empires uh, after 1919 that continued and their, the problem of their continuation under this regime. Okay, so that's one question. The other question you asked had to do with alternative proposals. And I think I think though there were many and many could have been quite effective, I think. Uh, after all, even in a place like Poland and where I'm not an expert, still there was quite a debate about what would the post 1918 Poland look like? Would it be a small Poland of Polish national, Polish Catholic nationals, I should say, or would it be a large Poland with many people who spoke different languages and practiced different religions, but who saw themselves as Polish, loyal to the Polish state, kind of like Austria. But, um, and the decision, of course, because nation states, the idea of the nation state was what won out, uh, was for the small idea of Poland. And the same thing is true, I think, for most of the successor states. Benesch at one point during the war, even this is a famous crazy quotation, or, or it's right after the war where he says Czechoslovakia will be sort of a Switzerland. Of course it wasn't, 
so I, you mentioned Boris Kuzmani before, or I mentioned him before, and he's leading a very interesting ERC project on the concept of non-territorial autonomy. And this is a concept that had been debated and discussed well before the war. Most people think of the Austro-Marxists who developed rather concrete understandings of what that could look like. But the point being that a national group within a society uh, would not be organized according, to, would not be divided by the territory, would not own territory. There wouldn't be the sort of national property idea of territory, but rather that there would be cultural institutions in which nationhood would be organized. I don't think that's so unrealistic, but once the decision was taken, these sort of abide by these Wilsonian ideas of nationhood. And it's not just Wilson, I mean, Lenin's idea or proclaimed idea at, the, at this historical moment also meant that Europe was going to have to be divided up into nations, nation states that we got. Uh, many people made many proposals uh, during the interwar period and some of them, I don't think they threatened the integrity of the states, but the states saw these proposals as threatening to their legitimacy and integrity. Many states were worried that because the treaties in Paris had divided up Europe so radically, it wouldn't be difficult to have another peace conference or set of treaties that would divide up Europe again if it hadn't worked. So they were all, they were all dead set on proving their legitimacy and in national terms. So I think that's partly why none of these other options ever came to fruition. After World War II, uh, ironically, with the expulsions and the movements of populations, I mean, going back to 1923, sorry to interrupt with that, but going back to 1923 and the idea of the Treaty of Lausanne, where the Ottoman Empire or the new Turkey and Greece exchanged populations. And it's such a nice term, exchange. Uh, and what did they actually exchange? Uh, Turkey was supposed to send uh, its Christian Orthodox uh, population to Greece, and Greece was supposed to send its Muslim population to Turkey. Not necessarily people who thought they were Turkish or Greek, but people who practiced religion. It, it uprooted hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Uh, the language of exchange is a language that makes it sound nice and normal, but in fact, it, it destroyed people's lives. Uh, but this principle somehow also is true after World War II, where it was allowed because people felt, the leaders thought, that nationalism had created too many problems in the interwar period. So the solution was to move people. Uh, and that became legitimized. And if we look to just take it closer to the present, if we look at the Dayton Accords that sort of settled or managed Bosnia, uh, we see the same thing, uh, that the powers believe that the most effective way of stabilizing the situation in Bosnia was to divide it up according to nationhood. And of course, what that's produced is a Bosnia that can no longer be unified, or someday I hope it can be, but it will be with superhuman efforts because it's legitimized this national principle. Um, it's possible, I'm not saying that, you know, it's quite possible that the Dayton Accords were the only way to stop the violence. I 
don't I can't express a, an expert opinion about that, but I do think it was a, a sad outcome for that situation. Um, when we look at how the successor states of the Habsburg Empire worked or related to minorities or what the standing of minorities in them were, could you um, speak a bit to the continuity of empire? You, you describe many of those successor states as small empires themselves, um, but there are market differences like the situation of minorities or nationalities in general in Czechoslovakia, for example, and um, the situation in Poland, just to take two examples. Can you talk about um, long-term trajectories? Like what are those, how can we explain those differences? What are they taking from the Habsburg Empire? Are they maybe taking a Cisleitanian model and the Hungarian model in how they are treating um, minorities? How can we explain these differences um, yeah. Uh, so first of all, I'll say that just generally, uh, the continuities in forms of administration, in institutions, and even in personnel uh, from the Habsburg Empire to the successor states is much greater than I think most historians recognized up until about five or 10 years ago. Uh, and there's a spectacular ERC project led by Gabor Egri, the Nepostrans project, that I think has really produced excellent uh, history that, that shows how this worked. And, and you are correct that it's the continuities are different continuities in each of these successor states. But I'll start by saying one other point, which is every one of these successor states in terms of rhetoric, discourse, propaganda, had to distance itself from the empire in order to uh, found its legitimacy. So for every one of these, every one of these states was founded on the idea that it wasn't the Habsburg Empire. And then they took over all of these forms anyway, um, which isn't surprising because the people who built these new states were often people who had had very important positions within the Habsburg Empire. Uh, if you think of the people who founded Czechoslovakia, they were all very important parliamentarians from uh, the Habsburg Empire. They were also people who had had enormous success in building what I would call a kind of Czech national bureaucracy within Bohemia. Um, so they weren't going to destroy those things. They were going to keep them going, obviously. Um, so in that sense, there's also continuity. I would say as a general rule that the successor states took over a lot of administrative and bureaucratic protocols, but then realized them in a context of a nation state rather than a multinational empire. So that, for example, in some of the successor states, uh, in order to have any political rights or political representation, minorities had to uh, reach a certain th numerical threshold. So in Czechoslovakia, I believed in a district or a province, they had to constitute 20%. And then they had the rights to certain things like schools in their language. Uh, it's different, obviously, in, in different uh, successor states. And also, I would say, uh, and there's been a lot of interesting work on this by people like Rock Stergar, um, 
we also can see quite clearly that in the first year, the first months of the transformation, there's a much more radical attempt to just change everything. Uh, and that attempt fails and almost immediately the states have to be more moderate in terms of who they keep on as bureaucrats, what structures they keep on. Of course, rhetorically, they still have to reject everything imperial. Now, each of these states to me is an empire because it behaves like an empire. It engages in imperial practices. Each of these states at the peace conference demands territory that is not territory where people who are part of the nation actually live, but they demand that territory either to have more secure borders or for civilizational regions. If you think of Czechoslovakia and Subcarpathian Rus, why on earth did Subcarpathian Rus go to Czechoslovakia? Well, it connected Czechoslovakia and Romania and they were allies. Uh, but also there's kind of a civilizational argument that Czechoslovakia will bring civilization to this backward Slavic region. Okay. Um, there's also an effort by many of these states to gain colonies outside of Europe. They fail, but they keep making these arguments in Poland in particular, but also the other states. Uh, there's a view of many of these states, some of the Baltic states too, that diasporic communities somehow form part of a larger imperial nation as well. And I think each of these states is looking at its neighbors, hoping to gain territorially at their expense. So in that sense, I think they are empires. But the, in their adoption, of Habsburg institutions. Those institutions are then always put into a national context or framework. So in the end, of course, they do work differently. Czechoslovakia is by far the most liberal of these states, the closest you could say to the Habsburg, to what had been Habsburg practice. But even Czechoslovakia had a sort of glass ceiling where, that you couldn't go above if you weren't, uh, didn't consider yourself Czech or Slovak. Um, and even Czechoslovakia could punish you if you put the wrong na nationhood, what they thought was the wrong nationhood on the census, for example. Other states made it much more difficult to be a minority. For example, in Yugoslavia, uh, in the early years, you couldn't send your child to a minority school if your child had a last name that was Yugoslav, even for whatever reason. Uh, so these kinds of things, affected the way in which institutions were adopted. The Polish state uh, is also a bit different because the Polish state is an amalgamation of territories from three that had been under three different empires. So while Galician, Austrian Poles, uh, who had a lot of experience in administrative, technical um, ruling uh, positions uh, were quite influential, I would say that the institutions of Galicia were not necessarily carried over into the new Poland. And I think you would know that probably much better than I. Um, and also just to add to something you've worked on, uh, the idea of Jewish nationhood becomes much more important and much more central after 1918, because if you have to gain rights by arguing that you are a nation, 
then Jewish nationhood becomes important. And that's also important, for example, with Roma claims, uh, even today, that uh, there has to be a Roma nation in order for the legitimacy of claims to be made. So I'm not sure I've answered the question, but <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I'll uh, stay with this last um, point, actually. So there is there's a, a strong narrative that minorities in the Habsburg Empire, especially the Jews, were the most loyal groups in society, that they stood by the state and the emperor until the very end, that they mourned the collapse of the state and later longed for this distant, supposedly better past. And how can we explain this phenomenon as to the extent that it was true, as well as this very persistent special form of memory of the minority, especially the Jewish experience in the Habsburg Empire? Wow. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of simple explanations, but I'd rather not engage in those. Uh, I think, uh, well, we have to be careful about nostalgia. Uh, and I think especially when talking about empire and I, people have certainly accused me of uh, enabling certain kinds of imperial nostalgia by writing the way I do about the empire. I think that to the extent that Jews saw themselves as not part of the nation, and of course, after the First World War, uh, that became a more, a much more immediate issue. Could they be part of the nation or not? For example, Hungarian Jews, many of whom saw themselves as Hungarians and wanted this before the war, after the war, and as a result of the experience of terrible violence uh, at the end of the war and in the year following the war, and, and their own rejection by the new Hungarian state, uh, had had to make claims based on Jews as a nation, claims that they would not have wanted to make um, beforehand. Uh, so I think not having a state, in a way, uh, made it all the more important uh, to make arguments as a nation or to try to successfully. But the nostalgia issue is a bigger one. I mean, the world of the 20s and 30s even is a little bit a part of this nostalgia too, uh, although the empire is much more the object of nostalgia. But if you think of uh, all the works on uh, Chernovitz, Chernivtsi, for example, even the 20s and 30s are viewed as uh, sort of a golden time, which they shouldn't be. They were terrible time, um, especially for Jews. Um, I think that the emancipation of the Jews is a myth that remains powerful and is a Habsburg myth, uh, even though those of us who study this know quite well that the emancipation didn't quite happen in the sort of progressive, nice way that uh, we like to remember it. That, um, But the idea that in the 1780s already, Joseph II was saying that Jews ought to serve in the Austrian military and that if they rose to ranks above uh, Christians that they ought to be able to give orders to Christians, and this was, as, as you know, like one of the one of the arguments against uh, having Jews in the, serve in the military successfully. Um, so I think all of this uh, becomes um, material 
for a kind of nostalgia that imagines a really a world of uh, emancipation, equality, possibility, options, which are all then foreclosed in the 20s and 30s. And that, of course, then people have to leave and there's genocide. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm putting this rather simplistically, but it doesn't surprise me that there's nostalgia. But I think we also have to remember, you know, there's plenty of anti-Semitism in the Habsburg monarchy. There's still the statue of Karl Weger in a very prominent place in Vienna, even though it has graffiti all over it now that says Schande, uh, as it should. Um, and that um, anti-Semitism, uh, as you've written, but it's quite clear from the work of many people, uh, that the state didn't always protect Jews from anti-Semitism, uh, the state at different levels. Um, the state is also opportunistic. So I think the nostalgia, I understand the phenomenon, but I think we have to look at it too critically as historians. So your work, together with that of, of many others, is part of a broader reevaluation of the history of the Habsburg Empire, in which the idea of, of a prison of people um, that was destined to collapse is fundamentally challenged. And in the recent decades, the study of the Habsburg Empire has, be, has become one of the most dynamic fields and the most interesting fields um, internationally. Uh, maybe in a way that the study of Germany was in uh, when you started um, your research. So maybe you can, you already mentioned quite a lot um, so far during this uh, podcast, but how do you see the state of the field today? And what do you think is it, it is having? Or, or in, in a different way, what new directions, which new questions, which new revisions should uh, young researchers um, be looking at? What should be on their agenda? Well, first of all, I think young researchers should tell us what should be on the agenda and then hopefully begin to carry it out. I'm not sure I have those answers, uh, but I can tell you the exciting thing about this field is, and I think the reason the field has become more prominent, because when I started, there was no one in the field, uh, is that it was clear around the year 2000, maybe a few years before that, that the field offered all kinds of opportunities for doing really transnational work. And the transnational turn in uh, the historical profession was a really great thing uh, for this field. Um, so there's no question of that. And fantastic studies also in environmental history, uh, in, um, in many, and in history of sciences, of course, too, this is a transnational field by definition. So that's one thing. Uh, where the field is going or where it ought to go. So my own interest lies in trying to understand uh, Habsburg history now in a more global context. Um, what's interesting about that, one thing that's interesting about the Habsburg Empire is that we call it an empire, but if we define, you know, if we define empire as a place that has uh, extra European colonies, uh, it doesn't really work. Of course, that isn't the only possible definition of empire. And nowadays, I think every state's an empire. So I'm not so happy with that. But I would say what I think we need and what we're beginning to get are global, globally oriented studies of the Habsburg Empire. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, even if the state 
doesn't makes a conscious choice actually the state not to pursue extra European colonies in the 1870s in particular. It's a really crucial moment. It's 1860s and 1870s because the Habsburg state has, let's say, other things to worry about in those years. Uh, that doesn't mean that Austro-Hungarian society isn't heavily involved in all kinds of imperial ventures. And we see this in the history of science. I mean, just if you think of the, just only of the voyage of the Novara alone that circumnavigates the globe in the 1850s and the kind of scientists who are involved in that or scientific exploration in the Arctic, um, this is extra European. The other thing is all kinds of business relationships that are global as well from uh, legitimate ones like the, uh, if we think of the networks of the Austrian Lloyd company, for example, which was the most important carrier in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, in, in the last uh, 20 years of or 30 years of the empire. If we also think of the shipments of the um, uh, Skoda munitions works that exported munitions to China, to Latin America, um, actually, and to the Balkans, uh, some would argue to the detriment of the preparedness of the Austrian military in 1914. But anyway, um, if we think of what I and several others are calling a new form of informal empire, then Austria-Hungary is quite present in the globe. And I'm my personal interest is to pursue this. Uh, I haven't also mentioned the other aspects, which are migration. We think of the millions of Austro-Hungarians who migrate in the second half of the 19th century to other parts of the world. And then what's often forgot is the hundreds of thousands who come back and what they bring, uh, a complete awareness of the world that's quite different from what they left and uh, new connections. Uh, I think this needs to be explored. I mean, also you can see it in religion, you can see it with missionaries. Uh, and there are some historians who are doing really interesting work on this and even going back to much earlier periods. I mean, I'm talking about the end of the 19th century, but uh, there's very interesting work on the role of uh, Austrian scientists and miners in Brazil in the early 19th century. So I think these are areas that need to be explored. And if I could add, I think what's interesting is that the historical profession right now is looking outward. In other words, national histories by themselves are not where most of the interesting work is being done. And I think that's quite proper. Uh, and yet the governments of many European states right now are more and more interested in encouraging highly nationalist histories. And so we're seeing a rather uncomfortable split between what historians in the profession want to do and what governments would like to pay historians to do. And in some states, Hungary, Poland, Slovenia, we have the active interference by governments in historical institutes or the funding of new institutes that will carry out the kind of national historical work that the governments would like to see and often uh, very bad historical work, but they get a lot of money. 
while the profession is moving in the opposite direction. And I think that's a, a bit of a crisis that professional historians need to address maybe more self-consciously right now. Thank you very much. Finally, tell us what you are working on right now and what can we expect from you in the next years? <laughs> My retirement. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I, uh, I'm working on advising many fascinating dissertations that go precisely in the directions I've talked about. In my own work, I would like to return to the 1850s and 60s and consider precisely this question of the global possibilities in Austrian society. Not so much what the government was interested in, but what various groups in society saw as possible for colonizing projects, um, business projects, scientific projects. But I have to say this effort of mine, this interest of mine is at the very beginning. Uh, and the other thing I'm interested in uh, that I'd rather not have to do, but I think someone has to do it, is to think about how the successor states incorporate empire into their national histories. Uh, in other words, how they don't and how they ought to. And it's a great concern of mine that uh, all the histories you read of in the successor states are histories that somehow view empire as alien. Whereas in fact, the, the societies were heavily engaged in empire. So I'd like to find some ways of creating narratives that include empire and don't see it as some alien form that you know, was imposed on some nations and then finally went away in 1918. Um, so I'm afraid I'm gonna have to write a bit about that, which isn't, what I'd like, but I think someone has to. Peter, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Jan.